Hey 90s Crime Time listeners, Simone here. And before we begin the show, I'd like to tell you about a company that has helped 90s Crime Time receive some sponsorship success. And that company is called Podcorn. Podcorn is a podcasting marketplace that helps podcasters like me connect to certain brands to monetize my voice and engage listeners. I am very glad that I have worked with them and I know many of my fellow podcasters are as well. And hey, to all my fellow podcasters who are looking for potential sponsorships for their show, I would highly suggest you sign up for Podcorn, because they can for sure help you monetize your voice and spread your show to broad audiences. So, if you're looking for a company that can expand your show's horizons, I would suggest Podcorn, which is totally free, and to help I've put a link to their website in the notes. Hey again, 90s Crime Time listeners, and I'm specifically talking to you, my fellow lady podcasters, this time who are tuning in. I have some amazing news, and that is from October 11th through the 14th, She Podcast Live will be taking place in Washington, D.C., This event is the world's largest gathering of women podcasters and is perfect for audio content creators, storytellers, and more. Attendees can expect to learn from female-identifying-only podcast editors, social media marketers, authors, podcast hosts, and more during this four-day event. In fact, She Podcast Live is committed to bringing a diverse and inclusive lineup of speakers with the team working hard in order to make sure those chosen are 50% women of color like me, LGBTQIA+, or both. They also highlight industry experts as well as leaders so attendees can get an inside look at what it's like being one on top. She Podcast Live is a great opportunity for all levels of podcasters. Register now and join us in D.C. this October on ShePodcastLive.com. And even better, when you register, you can use a special coupon code to get $50 off your ticket, and the code is 9CT. So when you purchase your ticket, make sure you use the code 9CT to get $50 off, and I'll put the link in the notes. And now, let's start the show. Hello. It's July 20th, 2022. My name is Simone, and this is a special edition of 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a great weekend and are having a great start to your week. And the reason why today's episode is a special episode or a special edition episode is because I um, was a little under the weather, um, but... I didn't want to keep you all waiting. Like, I was really, really sick, and I didn't want to keep you all waiting any longer. 
um, so for like a new episode. So I did some research on a case that I couldn't um, find too much on. Um, maybe because I was under the weather, I didn't do as much research as I should have. Um, but today's what I was going to be calling a, a mini-sode. Uh, I know a lot of podcasters have used mini-sodes in their, on their shows, and today's going to be one. Um, so with that, let's dive in to today's special edition episode. The year was 1990, and in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, called Shaker Heights, many of the residents here thought it had the most exceptional way of life. Here in Shaker Heights, at least at that time, the residents loved the historic architecture and tree-lined streets that surrounded them. Shaker Heights was such the ideal place to live for many that the city was an inspiration for many popular TV shows like Leave it to Beaver. Many in Shaker Heights dwelled on the fact that their city was a wonderful place to raise their children because the city had an excellent school system, fun and beautiful parks, and crime wasn't too high. But in September 1990, a murder so awful happened that it would scare the folks of Shaker Heights to their core and wonder who would be next. In the following episode, you'll find out what the awful crime was, the investigation, and the aftermath in a case I title, Shook in Shaker Heights. On the early morning hours of September 14, 1990, at around 12.30 a.m., Shaker Heights police were called to the scene of a ghastly crime that was located near the home of local high school student Dan Dreifert. Police were called because someone reported that a young woman was laying in the neighborhood and she had been ghastly assaulted. When police arrived, they discovered the teenager was stabbed 21 times with a knife-like object, and she was declared dead at the scene. According to reports, the teen girl's blue jeans and the underwear had been pulled down and off her left leg. Her dark blue turtleneck had been pulled up over her bra, and there were bruises on her neck that might have been caused by her necklace as if someone had pulled on it from behind. While investigating, police canvassed the neighborhood the girl was found in, and they came across Dan's parents' home. Police questioned Dan, and he told police that around 12.30, he heard what sounded like screams coming from the teen girl. He added, quote, It sounded like someone, a female, was being forced to do something that they didn't want to do, and it lasted for at least 15 seconds. I don't know for sure. End quote. But eventually the young girl was identified, and she was Dan's girlfriend, 16-year-old Lisa Pruitt. 
So who was Lisa, and how did she possibly get here? Well, let's go back a day to September 13th. According to reports, Lisa was a fairly popular student at our high school, who studied very hard, had a love of poetry, and she had such good grades, many thought she would eventually attend an Ivy League university. Lisa was also well-rounded and participated in a lot of after-school activities, such as band, student council, the school paper, and sports, such as ice hockey and soccer. On September 13th, that day was apparently one of the best days of her life. Well, that's what she told her good friends anyway. Because that day, she had an appointment to finally obtain her driver's license. She was 16, and if she passed her driving test, she'd be able to have the freedom to drive she and her friends around anywhere they wanted to go. Even though she was excited to possibly pass the test, she wanted to celebrate with the love of her life, Dan. Dan and Lisa had been in a relationship since April of 1990, but according to reports, the two had known each other for years. And Dan was a little different from Lisa. Dan was known as a rebel in school and a quote-unquote band nerd who lived in a mansion. Dan loved playing his own music so much that he created his own band called Your Mother and Her Howling Commandos. And the band practiced in the basement of Dan's house. However, not only did Dan and his bandmates practice in the home, Dan was also known to host parties. But his parties were what he called robo-parties, where everyone allegedly drank Robitussin and listen to music. But according to reports, Dan would sometimes take the Robitussin drinking a little too far and would get high. And to some, Dan's drinking of the cough syrup would lead him to violent and suicidal tendencies. But only a handful of people knew about Dan's suicidal tendencies. And Dan was eventually put on medication to help. And his parents became so worried that on August 8th, 1990, they put Dan in a psychiatric extended stay at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. Dan's parents hoped it would be for the best. And according to reports, Dan's stay at the clinic seemed to help him a little. Dan was apparently doing well enough that by the end of August 1990, he was able to take a leave from the clinic. However, after he was let out, Dan met up with some friends and overdosed on some antihistamines, leading his sister and friend to call poison control. After Dan's stint with the antihistamines, he was promptly sent back to the clinic. While Dan was away, most of Lisa's classmates didn't realize the extent as to why Dan was even gone that long. 
but Lisa so wanted her love back with her. And to her delight and surprise, on the afternoon of September 13th, after spending 35 days at the clinic, Dan was discharged. His father picked him up around 3 p.m. that day and took him home. And after Dan rode his bike to the high school to surprise Lisa, Lisa wasn't at school by that point. She was at her friend's home, who lived in the house directly behind Dan's, and they were studying. As soon as the word got out that Dan was home, more of his friends came by to visit him and catch up, and they greeted him with smiles and hugs. However, it eventually became a little late in the day, and Lisa's parents thought it was time for her to come home to get ready for flute practice. Her mother came to pick her up, and Dan escorted her to the car. At around six that night, Dan ate dinner with his family, and a few hours later, his friend came by, and they hung out while Dan played his guitar. Around 9 p.m., Lisa's father dropped her off after practice at Dan's house just so they could chat again for a little bit. While there, her father stayed in the driveway while Lisa and Dan went around the corner of his house to share some kisses and talk a little bit. According to reports, Dan told Lisa that he was going to have another robo-party, and he of course invited her. Lisa, in return, allegedly told him that she would sneak out of her home around midnight to join him. According to reports, as it became closer time to the party, Dan began cleaning the home to prepare. Around 11.30 p.m., Dan put on some music, but around midnight, Dan's sister Deb, who was away attending college, called the house. Dan's parents grabbed a phone in different rooms so they could talk to Deb at the same time, and Dan stayed in the room with his father to talk to her. Then, once his parents were done, he talked to Deb alone. Around 12.15 a.m., Dan ended the phone call with Deb and returned to his bedroom. And shortly thereafter was when he allegedly heard the screams. Dan apparently rushed out of the front door to the front lawn to check the screams. He apparently checked all along the street to see where those screams had possibly come from. And he was soon joined by his father outside to join the search. But they saw nothing apparently strange, and they went back in the home, and Dan continued to clean. Later, however, a thought hit Dan. Lisa was supposed to have snuck out of her house by the time he heard the screams, and she wasn't at his house yet. Thinking she was possibly in some trouble, Dan apparently left the home to look for her. He canvassed the neighborhood, and not too far from his home, Dan found Lisa's bike hidden in some bushes. He then apparently ran home and tried to reach Lisa at home, but he only got her answering machine. When the police eventually questioned Dan and his family, 
police told him Lisa was dead. And they began asking him a bunch of questions. Like, did his parents know Lisa was supposed to come over to what he was wearing on the night of the murder? Dan answered their questions and then went back home, where he and Lisa's friends gathered to grieve her murder. However, the next day, what Dan wasn't expecting was that while watching the 5 p.m. news, TV reporters hinted that he was a suspect. Angry by what they said, Dan contacted police, and on the 15th, after discussing who could have murdered Lisa, Dan and some of his friends came up with the name and told police they were sure a local young man by the name of Kevin Young was behind the murder. Kevin Young, according to reports, was known in town as someone who some found handsome and from a decent background. But to some who knew Kevin on a personal level, he was anything but a stand-up citizen. According to reports, by the time of Lisa's murder, Kevin was 19 years old and a college student at Ohio State. But he previously attended Shaker Heights High and mingled somewhat with mutual friends of Lisa and Dan's. But even though he had some friends, Kevin made most people uncomfortable. According to a source, Kevin frequently ranted about Jewish and black people, saying they were ruining Shaker Heights. He also had an issue with being told no, because according to another report, once on a band trip to Toronto in 1988, Kevin worked up some nerve to ask a girl out on a date. And after she refused, he threatened to jump from his hotel balcony. After this, Kevin was hospitalized and put on medication, but he complained to his loved ones that the meds made him feel funny. And according to a report, Kevin's parents let him stop taking his medication in 1989. But even though he eventually stopped taking his medication, Kevin still made frequent trips in and out of psychiatric hospitals. When he wasn't treating his mental health, Kevin spent a lot of time at a local coffee shop where he liked to play chess against master players. But according to reports, Kevin wasn't good at the game like many others, but he did like a good challenge. And according to reports, that's where Kevin was all day on the day of Lisa's murder. So why did some of Lisa's friends name him as her alleged killer? Well, according to reports, Kevin's accusations started after two young men named Shane McGee and John George went to the Shaker Heights police and told them they had heard months earlier that Kevin wanted to kill both Dan and Lisa because he had been in love with Lisa for two years and Dan had stolen her away from him. And in the days after Shane and John went to police, more of Lisa and Dan's friends came forward saying the same thing. Kevin was in love with Lisa and Dan was in the way. John George added to police that earlier on, he told Kevin that he had heard that Lisa and Dan had allegedly had sex and it made Kevin angrier. John told police, Kevin told him, quote, that asshole, that asshole, I hate him. I'm going to kill him. I want her dead. 
end quote. According to a report, a young woman who knew Kevin also came forward to police, saying that on the afternoon of the murder, she saw Kevin at the coffee shop and started chatting with him. She added that sometime during their conversation, they talked about Lisa's murder and how she may have been raped. She said Kevin thought she wasn't raped and that she was probably stabbed, which was true. Another young woman came forward and said she too sat with Kevin at the coffee shop that day. And she said that while they were there, Kevin found out Dan had gotten out of the psychiatric hospital. And she said Kevin said, quote, I have some unfinished business to take care of, end quote. Meanwhile, as acquaintances of Kevin were being interviewed, Kevin was doing another stint at a hospital for his behavior. On the night of September 15th, he was playing chess with a therapist when the TV nearby mentioned Lisa's murder. And then right there on the screen, Kevin's picture showed up and named him as a suspect. People in the room gasped, and Kevin got up and left to his room. After a few minutes, his therapist went to his room to check on him, but he shooed her away. And the next day, Kevin continued on as normal. According to reports, however, his therapist overheard Kevin mumble to himself, quote, I didn't mean to hurt the little girl. I didn't mean to hurt the little girl. And then he allegedly followed up with, quote, Well, maybe I did hurt the little girl. Maybe I did do it. End quote. And then he punched a wall. In the late evening hours of September 15th, Kevin was brought in for questioning. Kevin told detectives that on the night of the murder, his parents saw him go to his room at 11.30 p.m. And then by 11.45, Kevin said he couldn't sleep and went back downstairs to watch TV. But detectives didn't believe him and accused him of killing Lisa. Kevin adamantly denied killing her and offered to take a lie detector test to prove his innocence. Detectives agreed to administer a lie detector test to Kevin, and according to reports, while he was alone, detectives noticed he was very nervous and shaky, and that sometimes he would take long cigarette puffs and would talk to himself. Kevin was now their only suspect, and after his polygraph test, he received mixed results. And he was determined to be deceptive while answering direct questions about the murder. Also, after the test, Kevin said he was feeling suicidal and requested to be admitted to the hospital for treatment, where he remained for two months. The day after the polygraph test, on the 16th, a search warrant was served at the Young's house. Inside Kevin's bedroom, detectives found drawings of pentagrams, a devil face, and a heart-shaped tattoo with a Christian cross, stabbed and dripping blood. They also discovered Kevin's diary, in which he called his mom a bitch and how he hated her. And he also said, quote, I just want to take over the world make the blacks and Jews and the Slavs and the Latins and the yellows and the Semites subordinate to us. I am worth absolutely nothing, 
end quote. Fast forwarding to December 12th, Kevin was released from the hospital, but many in Shaker Heights felt he was behind the murder and were angry that Kevin was not behind bars. However, police felt they didn't have enough evidence at that time to arrest him for murder. But not too long after his release, two fellow patients came forward to say Kevin admitted to killing Lisa. And on November 24, 1992, Kevin was indicted and officially charged with aggravated murder. Kevin's parents paid top dollar for a top attorney for their son and put up their home as collateral. On June 28, 1993, Kevin's trial began. The defense team for Kevin tried to place the blame on Dan, including producing threatening letters Dan allegedly wrote Lisa. And when Dan took the stand, the defense questioned him one prolific question. Why did Dan go to sleep when police were outside searching for his girlfriend? Dan responded saying sleeping was a way for him to escape from what he feared happened. On July 6th, a detective who was first to arrive on the scene told the court Dan said he never heard the screams. And on July 17th, Kevin's father testified that at the time of the murder, he and Kevin were home playing video games and that they went to bed at 1.15 a.m. Regarding the prosecution, many folks were angry that a judge refused to allow them to enter into evidence notes that were taken by Kevin's personal psychiatrist. Fast forwarding to July 21, 1992, after 10 hours of deliberations, the jury found Kevin not guilty, leading to an outrage. Many people in Shaker Heights and the surrounding area felt Kevin was guilty without a doubt, even though there was no real evidence besides hearsay naming him as Lisa's killer. Also, many felt that after the judge told the prosecution they couldn't use Kevin's psychiatrist's notes, that helped to acquit Kevin. Many local media outlets also seemed to be biased after they pretty much accused Kevin of murder themselves, and it all became too much for Kevin. According to reports, after he left court, Kevin went to a neighboring town and climbed onto a bridge over Interstate 271 and threatened to jump. An officer spotted him and managed to talk him down. In the aftermath, Kevin moved to a different town, but remained in the area. But according to reports, Kevin felt he still had a target on his back because many felt he was Lisa's killer. In the years after the acquittal, no one else was named as a suspect. And on January 14, 2017, Kevin Young died at the age of 44 due to a suspected alcohol overdose. Lisa Pruitt's case remains unsolved. The story of Lisa Pruitt's murder comes from the sources of Grunge.com, the Akron Beacon Journal, the Cleveland Scene, and others I'll put in the notes.
right? Um, like, because I'm still a little under the weather, I'm going to do a very, very, very short opinion piece. Um, one thing is, I don't know if Kevin Young was the actual killer. The courts acquitted him, so he can't be named as her killer. But I, I didn't really see a lot of, or read a lot of evidence suggesting he was, besides what I read saying it was hearsay pretty much um yeah he was probably mad because he was crushing on lisa and he wanted dan out of the way but he would have probably killed dan if that were the case um not lisa unless he didn't want anybody else with lisa um so that's one thing i was kind of confused about i didn't think kevin may have been um her killer possibly um number two he was at home from what i read uh, he had been had issues at the hospital, of course, but he wasn't at the hospital at that time. But um, he was at home and his parents vouched for him that he was legit at home and there was no evidence suggesting that he wasn't at home. And um, three, there's a lot of um, papers out there that are also alluding to Dan being her killer, possibly. Um, there were some threatening notes that he allegedly made that they came across and um, I don't know what was actually on those letters but apparently he threatened her for some time apparently and um she her body was found near his house and how did he not see her um laying there he found her bike but not her that's a little weird um his story wasn't adding up because the police officer the tech detective said at the trial that he said that Dan said he didn't hear the screams but he told other officers that he did hear the screams so there's some lack of, you know, communication or something or things aren't adding up. There's maybe some lying. I don't know, but it's just very weird. And I don't know. Maybe someone else did it. Maybe it wasn't Dan or Kevin. Maybe it was a random killer. We don't know. But um, I don't know what the motive would be if Dan did kill Lisa. Um, the motive would be, for my opinion, if Kevin killed her, which he, the court say he didn't, um, that he was upset that Lisa dared to date someone else besides him. And he had not taken being rejected um, before. I'm sorry for that noise in the background, guys. So sorry for my texting, <laughs> my texting. Um, he had been rejected before back in Toronto, 1988, and threatened to jump because a girl turned him down. So maybe he did or didn't. I don't know. No one knows, apparently, allegedly. Um, but also, I read that on an interview that, well, I saw an interview um, with someone saying that a lot of people in Shaker Heights had top dollar to pretty much get their name cleared. So people, the police may know who actually killed Lisa Pruitt, and they're just not brought to justice because money talked. I don't know. I'm not blaming the police or anything, but you just never know because there's theories out there that they do know who actually killed her. And we may never know publicly who did. Um, but yeah, you can draw your own conclusions. And that's it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you are intrigued. Once again, I have been very under the weather, but I wanted to get a new episode out to you all. And I know this episode was a little shorter than others. And I could have given more details, but it was a struggle on my end. But um, anyway, if you liked what you heard on today's show, um, I hope you are nice about it because, like I said, I didn't do my best work right now. I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying so hard to be um, on time more, and uh, please forgive me. But if you did like what you heard um, on today's show and have not done so yet, please rate 90s Crime Time on any platform that has a rating system, primarily Apple or Spotify, or you can let me know what you think on 90s Crime Time social media, uh, like Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. 
Lastly, I would like to give a special shout out to one of 90s crime, 90s crime times fans, and her name is Bianca. She's helped the show stay afloat in a big way, and she knows how. Um, but I would personally like to thank Bianca for all she has done. So thank you, Bianca. And with that, stay safe and healthy. Have a great weekend. And I will see you soon, I promise, for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time.